Hello everyone, my name is Tom Stewart. And this is Riley McDonald. Welcome back to Hammer Time. A new fangled podcast for old fangled horror. And today, we're quite excited, we're going to be starting season two. Discussing some lazy corpses who do nothing at all until they're forced to get back to work. Before we get going, I just wanted to apologize to everybody for the extended hiatus that we've had on this show. Yeah, it's been a hectic couple of months uh, here for Tom and I in terms of schoolwork where we had a lot to get done. We're hoping to get back to delivering uh, some content on a more regular basis on our usual sporadic schedule. And I'd just like to thank everybody for all of the support. We have not been pushing this podcast at all on any of the social media, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr. One could say we've been actively avoiding them. Shamefully avoiding it, yeah. And we just looked before we started recording this at our SoundCloud account, and people have been consistently listening. Even though we forgot about this podcast, you have not forgotten about this podcast, and I just wanted to thank everybody for that. Yeah, it it does mean a lot to us. So, uh, without further adieu, today we are going to be discussing the 1966 film Plague of the Zombies. We picked this movie for a number of reasons. This is remembered as among the best movies in the Hammer canon. It comes out in one of the great triumphant years for Hammer. It's the same year The Reptile comes out. And Dracula, Prince of Darkness. And uh, with the exception of Woman in Black, which is after Hammer restarts in the 21st century, all of the Hammer movies we've talked about so far have been right at the beginning of Hammer Production Studios in the 1950s. So this movie is a full decade later, and we picked it because we wanted to see what, if anything, has changed about the style and the aesthetic and the themes of these stories. This movie is also a good example of Hammer branching out. All of the Hammer movies that we've talked about so far, including The Woman in Black, are adaptations of previous texts. This is their own script that they are have written from the beginning and are bringing to screen. This is also a movie that is in some ways so ultimately Hammer. It engages this very comfortable parlor idea of Britishness. It's set in this pseudo-Victorian, early Edwardian period, judging from the clothes, but they're also talking about zombies and kind of experimenting with that. Zombies are not what you think about when you think of Hammer. They're not what you think about when you think of really high gothic horror. But first off, uh, I guess we should just sort of go over what is this movie about, Tom? Just as far as basic plot synopsis goes, the movie starts in London, uh, at some point in the early 20th century, where professional grouch and uh, medical professor Sir James Forbes receives a letter from his favorite protege, Peter, uh, who is currently practicing as a physician in a small town in Cornwall. And in this letter, Peter rather hysterically tells him about a mysterious illness that is currently sweeping through this village. Sir James is on vacation, and so his daughter, Sylvia, convinces him to head down to the town to investigate. And so they approach this town, which they soon find out is under the tyrannical control of Squire Clive Hamilton and his henchmen, uh, called awesomely the Youngbloods. Sir James... Uh, Peter, his protege, and Sylvia, the latter of whom ends up attracting some reasonably unwanted advances from Clive Hamilton, discover that the squire's sudden wealth and power is actually built upon his knowledge of voodoo rituals, which he has acquired in the Caribbean, and 
they discover that he's turning the townspeople into zombies in order to operate a tin mine that he has inherited in order to gain his wealth. A very succinct summary, Tom, and uh, completely off the top of your head, which I find admirable. Absolutely amazing, I think. And I'm sure this eloquence will keep up for the rest of this episode, especially considering we never edit these things. What do you mean? (laughs) So, um... There's lots to talk about with this uh, movie, fortunately, but I think the best thing to start off with is to, you know, focus on the title, uh, The Plague of the Zombies, and and to consider this as a part of the zombie canon. And I think we should bring a caveat to bear upon this episode before we even begin it, really. I don't think either of us really is a big fan of zombies. Personally, I find zombie movies, zombie texts really tiresome now that it has completely washed over our cultural consciousness. Um, It is absolutely everywhere, and I find it really trite and uh, repetitive and annoying. Yes, uh, I would go as far as saying I have a a conscious antipathy toward (laughs) most zombie stories, be they video games, movies, television, whatever. That said, I think this is a pretty interesting movie. Um, Yeah, I think we both found some really interesting things to talk about. So I guess, I mean, the way I would start this off is to to give a little bit of history about the idea of the zombie itself. And so um, for North American and and Western European audiences, the popular culture figure of the zombie is, relatively speaking, a a newer concept than vampires or werewolves or or evil spirits or what have you. All these things that we've seen before in the other Hammer movies we've talked about. Yeah, undead has always been there in Western mythology. We always have stories of corpses rising from the grave, but the zombie is an undead with a specific twist. And early on in the zombie stories, it is the twist of having a voodoo ritual, a kind of exotic magic brought to bear upon the corpse. So we can trace uh, the pop culture figure of the zombie, at least in in the researches we've done, specifically to the year of 1929, when a travel writer named William Seabrook uh, goes to the island of Haiti uh, and writes a travelogue called The Magic Island, which comes out in 1929. In his book, Seabrook talks about the idea of the zombie, which he claimed to have seen while he was there. And these Zombies are undead corpses, of course, that are laboring under the command of a magician who has uh, resurrected them from the grave to perform labor. His discussion of zombies in The Magic Island is only 12 pages long in the chapter called um, Dead Men Working in the Cane Fields. And even though it is a relatively uh, small percentage of the book, it immediately captured the imagination of his readership, uh, which was substantial. The book was a big hit when it came out. So uh, a couple years after the book came out, I believe it was 1931, a stage play called Zombie was performed on Broadway, again to great commercial acclaim. The year after that, in 1932, uh, Universal Pictures makes the film White Zombie, starring Bela Lugosi. Um, Which ends up being a big influence for this movie, I would say. And for for zombie movies in general, uh, it's a major element. And there will be other zombie movies that come up in the decades after that. I Walked with a Zombie is a famous one. Or uh, the much less famous The Zombies of Mora Tau. And... The Plague of the Zombies is usually thought of as the last film before the big one, George A. Romero's 1968 movie, Night of the Living Dead. That's where the zombie, the popular culture genre for the contemporary age, 
really seems to begin. And so a lot of the um, discussions of zombie cinema or zombie popular culture all take these earlier works of which The Plague of the Zombies is included as steps leading up to Night of the Living Dead. And in that way, this movie's distinct inventions end up being kind of overridden by simply thinking of it as a stepping stone toward the, I think we can agree, much better Night of the Living Dead, um, which came out only two years later. I think, however, that we can see this movie as its own very important pivot point for the genre, and there are some really interesting things going on here. Oh, oh, totally. Rather than thinking of this as a step on the way to the zombie genre, we want to tarry with this movie and, and think through what it itself is contributing to the zombie uh, story. So tarry with us, gentle listener, won't you? <laughs> one of the... God, one of the main innovations i think of this movie is to bring the zombie to britain to the center of the empire the zombie has always been this perilous magic creature that you end up finding when you are shall we say a white tourist going to an exotic island location and i think it is i think it is important to bring up here again for historical detail the us took control of the haitian government and the island in 1915 and pretty much ran it for about 20 years until 1934 so haiti is under colonial occupation and the zombie story when it when it first enters the popular culture consciousness is part of and is explicitly dealing with the legacies of colonialism, imperialism, and racism, however problematic these depictions are. And I think that this movie explicitly plays with its audience's sense at the time of the zombie as the exoticized, distant danger. And we see this in the very opening shots. The first shot of this movie is of a highly exoticized and sensationalized voodoo ritual that is taking place with people in long robes, odd masks, blood, daggers, uh, a number of black figures drumming hypnotically throughout the course of the scene, and then suddenly this is contrasted with the first dialogue of the movie, which takes place in a scene that is so extremely British. It is set in a very luxurious, comfortable manner setting. There is a uh, middle-aged, middle-class man with a wonderful mustache playing with fishing flies and a fishing rod and having an argument with his daughter about how he doesn't like being on vacation. I think they're even drinking tea. If they're not, they like it doesn't matter because the scene is so, as you said, perfectly British. Ultimately, they are always already drinking tea. And moreover, I think what's really important is that we don't get a sense of the geography. We think that this is in some far-flung area of the colonies and that this manor is somewhere in London. Even though, as we find out, this uh, ritual is not taking place in the outposts of the empire, but rather in this Cornish village. And this patterning of juxtaposing these two uh, ritual performances, this performance of Britishness and this performance of what we'll call 
otherness occurs throughout the movie most notably to me uh there's a scene about halfway through the movie where the main characters are attending a funeral and the director john gilling cross cuts between the very staid funeral rites that are being performed in the churchyard and then cuts to the voodoo performance that's going on beneath the squire's man uh, beneath the squire's estate and so the way that the scenes are cross cut with one another makes you uh, draw the conclusion that these two uh, rituals are being contrasted with one another. And I think that's really important in terms of this theme of bringing the zombie into Britain, is it's not just that there is a British town that is under threat, it is that the zombie ritual becomes increasingly indelibly associated with British class and authority. This is the squire who is enacting these rituals and it is underlined by the politics of this town, which seems so desperately medieval. The squire is said to be judge, juror, coroner in this town. He is the seat of all authority, just as it would have been in a medieval period. It's quite asynchronous with the actual film itself, but it underlines that master-slave power dynamic that was there in the original zombie discussions, but now it is superimposed upon a British class system that is so rapacious that it desires to make slaves of the underclass. And just to add to that, the, I mean, like, perhaps, perhaps we are reading into this a bit much. That's not but, something we do. Uh, but the specific and explicit juxtapositions of these rituals not only highlight the performative and, as you said, Tom, and I think it's a, a, a good word for it, sensational depiction of this colonial voodoo otherness, but also th through the juxtaposition makes that performance of Britishness just as clear to the viewer. To the extent that the first time we see the young bloods, they're in the middle of a fox hunt, which is about as stereotypically upper-class British as you can get. Jeremy Irons would be <laughs> proud. And I think that this explicit sense of place is a strong selling feature for this movie. We're going to let you peek behind the curtain to a certain extent on this podcast. Avid listeners will realize that what we should be talking about on this episode is The Curse of the Werewolf. That's what we promised on the last episode. And we recorded a Curse of the Werewolf episode and didn't have anything to say about it. In fact, it was so abysmal that we couldn't look at each other in the eye for about six months, which is the actual reason for our hiatus. Uh, and the reason why we had such trouble talking about The Curse of the Werewolf is that it's a movie that is set in Spain, but is so thin and shallow. There was no specific sense of time, there was no specific sense of genre, and there was no specific portrayal of Spain. It was this very thin British imaginary of what Spain would be. It was to Spain what Taco Bell is to Mexico. Now, that's not to say we tune into Hammer Horror Films for documentary-like representations of European cultures, but... No matter what our podcast seems to indicate. It was just so shallow, the most basic and uninteresting signifiers. The characters calling each other Don, whatever, and referring occasionally to Hacienda, that uh, <laughs> there's no... Like, that it impeded the story, whereas here, because obviously the cast and crew are British, uh, it's being shot in the UK, it has such a, a sense and confidence in its geography, culture, and history of the UK that it makes the story feel lived in and real as opposed to this kind of two-dimensional fairy tale location that is in Curse of the Werewolf. And a great example of this cultural specificity 
comes with its setting in Cornwall, which, of course, has this big cultural cachet within horror of witchcraft and the supernatural and a kind of high gothic setting. But layered over top of that is also this expression of a very local British anxiety toward the, oddly enough, mining history of Cornwall. Cornwall, of course, is famous for its mines, particularly tin and arsenic, which ends up cropping up in this film in a really fascinating way. Uh, I, and presumably our millions of listeners, are on the edges of our seats, Tom, so why don't you take us over? Listen, if the polls have told me anything about our listeners, it is that they want a little bit less of us rattling on about horror and a little bit more about two key things. One, 20th century labor history, and two, common metals and where to find them. So buckle up. Cornwall's mining, particularly tin, would have been on the public mind in 1966 when this movie came out because it was one of the first times in the 20th century where tin prices were quite obviously and consistently on the rise right up until 1985, but that is a discussion for the Thatcher podcast. Cornwall had had a very uneven mining history within the 20th century. There had been all of these booms and busts that had seen the mines open and close, but finally the mines seemed to be on their feet. In fact, Real Jane, which was one of the major mines, would be opening up due to high demand just a few years after this movie came out. And particularly pertinent, I think, is that because of this boom and bust economy, most of the Cornish miners had moved away from the area by this point in what's called the Cornish diaspora. They'd moved to Canada, the US, New Zealand, Brazil, and so when the markets finally started to arise after World War II, they didn't have enough local talent, shall we say. And so these mines were having to bring in foreign workers, specialty miners from Italy and Poland. And I think that that really feeds into the anxieties oh, that are at play uh, with having these zombies. I'm uh, SoundCloud account here, Tom, and oh, all our listeners went away. Well, as Brexit and the Wild Rose Party have taught us, the polls are never wrong, McDonald. Dreadfully dull as that was, Tom, I think you are hitting on a main theme of this movie and to some extent every Hammer movie, which is villainizing of the aristocracy. Squire Hamilton is the, you know, the antagonist of the movie and we're meant to hate him and his ilk. But the inhabitants of this Cornish village who are, you know, uh, working class are depicted as being superstitious and, and reactionary. Martinus, who is our main villager here refuses to let his brother be autopsied by Peter or Sir James. He doesn't want an autopsy done because he's superstitious. Uh, he doesn't see the worth in science. The villagers aren't treated as bad guys, but they are treated as being kind of foolish here. Uneducated. Yes. And, and so between these two currents, we have our main heroic figures, Peter, Sylvia, and especially Sir James, and they are all... Redolent of the middle class. Yes. Even though Sir James has been knighted, he is, you know, a working professional. He's a doctor and a professor. And I think that goes right back to the first scene where he says he's on vacation. That implies that he works for a living. As, uh, as compared to Squire Hamilton, who is landed gentry, whose uh, wealth and value comes from the mines that he is using exploited labor to derive uh, his capital from. And I think what's really interesting about it is we kind of get a rewriting of a really significant Frankenstein scene. So Sir James and Peter decide, because they're being stonewalled by the villagers and also by the squire into performing autopsies, they decide that they're just going to dig up a corpse and perform an autopsy on it anyway. And this scene plays out as a great example of both the comedy in the movie and the 
Britishness of it. Sir Forbes and Peter end up getting discovered opening up the grave of Martinus' brother by two absolutely stereotypical bobbies, to the extent that you expect them to say, Hello, hello, what's all this then? Excellent. We just lost all of our British listeners. Both of them. (laughs) Sir Forbes ends up, after stating his name and title, talking his way out of it, even turning the police into his own allies in his investigation, which is a great example of the respectability of the middle class within this class-conscious film. This is an important rewriting because in The Curse of Frankenstein and even in the novel Frankenstein, Victor's grave robbing and engagement with bodies is is treated as being grotesque. Like in Curse of Frankenstein, we see him bartering for the eyes of a murderer and it's treated as being, you know, this disgusting act. His quest for limbs and organs ends up being the central horror of that film. But in this movie, we're meant to take Sir James as being a noble embodiment of middle-class rationalism that is trying to fight through the superstition and dig up this body to perform proper science on it, to figure out what is causing these deaths. So, yeah, it it really situates the middle class as the kind of heroic figure here. Within the predator-prey relationship of the upper and lower classes in this town, it is the middle class that sweeps in, solves everything, breaks up this very dated power construct that has somehow remained in this town. But of course, in making the class element front and center here, the movie ends up, as, as we said earlier, making the racial politics secondary and also kind of turning the racial element into a prop in this movie. This is not to say films like White Zombie or The Zombies of Moratau or even I Walked With a Zombie, which has a little more self-awareness about the racial element of these things. Not to say that any of these movies are particularly adept or skillful at depicting the racial issues here. And, And White Zombie is pretty racist when you get down to it. This movie, by turning the elements of the voodoo rituals into just pure props, I think is even less engaged in trying to explore the racial element of things. And I think that's a big problem with the movie. It's completely uninterested in the racial politics of it. But in that, I think it ends up charting a path that later zombie movies are going to be taking up. And we'll get to that in a second. But all of these props, be they the magic daggers or vessels of blood or masks or totems, end up well, becoming totemic rather than an actual discussion of the racial politics that they embody. Even when you get to the acting side of things, there's 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 four black actors in this movie, three of which have no lines. And are really given no costumes. No, they're just dressed, they're dressed in like fur pelts and they just drum all the time. And the other character is the squire's butler who's got like a couple lines and that's it. Like there's no attempt to engage with the racial side of things at all here. And most of the zombie movies before this have had a sort of awkward attempt at a vaguely documentary aesthetic. And I think this stems right back to Seabrook's book, which was originally a piece of quote-unquote nonfiction. These zombie movies are quite often supposed to exhibit what they do in the colonies. And this movie completely empties that out to the extent that It is mentioned in just a brief passing sentence that Clive Hamilton ended up being trained in this voodoo ritual, quote-unquote, in the Caribbean. 
We never see it. We never get a sense of what that ritual, what that training would have been. He just acquired that knowledge somehow. So then, Tom, do you think, okay, on the one hand, you have really ham-handed and awkward movies that are trying to discuss racial politics in a in a really poor way. And then you have this movie, which kind of uh, uses it only in the most window dressing sense and the the race stuff is just yeah as you said prop or totem both of these approaches have their problems is this better or worse or is it probably best not to go down that route to try I think and it's, hierarchize I, them? i think it's better not to try to hierarchize who's the more racist but i think that it can be said that this movie that while it very problematically discards really any interest in race the movie does have a very distinct statement it wants to say about class. And I, I while... suppose, I guess I'd be a little bit harsher on it in just saying that, like, you could, by, by still drawing on the race stuff, it, it kind of opens up that question, or it opens up that field only to foreclose it, and that really seems like a, a misstep to me. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, I think, for me, the real problem of the movie is that it explicitly... Well, the real problem for you is they treat the aristocracy as the bad guys. <laughs> I'm not leaving that in. Um, I think for me, the real problem of this movie is that they are, they are in a way, discussing an anxiety of something that happens in the colonies being brought by the imperial colonials home to Britain. And yet, at the same time, what they're really doing is bringing this genre which was originally about race and kind of colonizing it for britain to be able to talk about britain and what you just said there tom i think is really interesting i'm going to take it in a different direction because you 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 earlier said that this is kind of a pivot movie and i like that idea because if if we consider you know the zombie movie the first wave of zombie movie say which is everything from white zombie to 1968 and the second wave, which I guess we are still in, which is Night of the Living Dead. The viral zombie. Exactly. We move from the voodoo zombie to the viral zombie. And I think this movie, in a really interesting fashion, is anticipating that. Because Sir James and Sylvia are brought to Cornwall because Peter thinks that the village is being swamped by a sickness. And that discourse, that th there's an illness, there's a plague, as we know, it's in the title, runs throughout this movie. And I think... That title, Plague of the Zombies, has additional resonance for viewers nowadays where uh, we always think of the zombie in terms of this viral transmission. And so it's turning the zombie from the mythological or the folkloric into the pathological. It, it goes from being about magic to being about bodies and how they're being controlled. And that is even hinted at in the movie. Uh, Sir James says to Peter, these voodoo rituals... This witchcraft is what he calls it, is not the obverse of science. It is this sort of like dark corner of science. It's a very Van Helsing way of looking at the supernatural. And that's how Sir James looks at the zombie. It's not magic. It's just a part of nature that science hasn't engaged with. And by engaging with it now, it's no longer this mystical force. It's no longer the element of the voodoo side of things, but it is going to be about sickness and transmission, which is what the zombie is nowadays. And I think you're right, having set up the foundations of what this movie is doing, we can get into a real discussion about how it is a pivot point for the genre. Not only has this sense of the plague, which is right there on the tin, grown even better as a reference over time, there is also a distinct sense that this movie is doing something very influential in the way that it talks about the nation, 
so often now zombies are a way for a nation to talk about its own anxieties about its national identity so here really? we really so you think that um I, i'm not sure i buy that okay well let me break it down for you just in the sense that there are russian zombie movies there are german zombie movies there are mexican italian canadian american zombie movies and consistently most obviously in america they tend to be talking about their own culture ultimately rather than what it used to be about talking about a colonial culture see i see it i see it in a different way and maybe what i'm seeing is actually just seeing what you're talking about american culture perfect example of this would be dawn of the dead and yeah there is a whole bunch of arguments about whether zombies in america are a discussion of reaganomics or democrats or what have you but that one where it is set specifically in a mall and is so easily read as a distinct critique of mindless consumer culture in late capitalism. This, I think, is a perfect example of the way in which zombies can be used and are consistently used as metaphors for an anxiety of the impulses that are at the heart of a specific cultural or national identity nowadays. I mean, okay, when you say it like that, I think I understand what you're saying. The types of movies... The zombie movies or zombie texts we're most familiar with are American. I don't really know Russian or Mexican or Italian zombie films. But when I'm thinking of these movies, it's always about really the individual against the mob, which is a kind of, I guess, idealized American history of standing up to conformist tyranny through a kind of libertarian individualism. But I see that style of survival narrative where it's the one well-armed man and it's almost always a man it's a it's a fantasy of masculinity absolutely it is and and that kind of like fending off the these feral hordes with your trusty uh second amendment weapon okay (laughs) saying saying second amendment i guess it is pretty american uh yeah okay i i guess i concede the point there tom i think another example would be night of the living dead where it ends with a nightmarish example of a lynch mob ultimately that ends up killing the black protagonist okay okay i guess the other way to think of it is like the zombie as you know this transmissible virus is also so clearly linked to contemporary discussions of like global connectivity and the sort of computer virus i'm trying to think of an example here and and to cut to our day job for a second this is specifically what scholars are starting to talk about in regard to zombies Dr. Karen McFarlane is a great example if you want to look up her work. And is a lovely person on top of that. Yeah, she's a great friend. Uh, and she she talks about uh, a specific zombie book, Dead of Night, where the uh, zombie plague is specifically linked to notions of transmissibility through viral videos, through YouTube, and this notion that the viral infection and the viral technology are operatively the same. Another example would be, again, we're drawing from Karen here, World War Z, which does the same sort of thing, the sort of global connection and stuff like that. We see zombie as a kind of expression of contemporary technological anxieties. Right, and and I think ultimately we are agreeing here. This is what happens when we get into a more transnational moment of our history, where we're starting to, with World War Z, for example, talk about worlds with fewer borders. But this does ultimately all stem from perhaps this movie, which ended up emptying out the racial discussions of zombies in order to make them simply totemic and colonize that discussion for 
our own purposes. In some ways, it, it, for the last little bit, we've been kind of talking around this movie. To, to bring it back to Plague of the Zombies and to, to kind of close out our discussion, I want to focus on what is considered to be the most important, most significant, and most remembered scene of this movie, which is really two scenes that bleed really nicely into one another. If you've seen anybody's Halloween decorations where there is a hand coming out of the earth, you know this moment. So Sir James and Peter are in the cemetery just after Peter's wife Alice has died and they've chased away the cult members and Alice, we see, uh, it focuses on her face as it decays into the zombie makeup and she rises from the grave with this kind of grotesque smile on her face and approaches Sir James and then he, with one mighty swing of his shovel, uh, <laughs> cuts her head off. The camera shifts to Peter and starts becoming more free-flowing. Like, the camera work up to this point in the movie has been rather static. And in fact, I would say at some points downright bad. There's some really poor blocking in the first half of this movie where actors are obscured by props. But the camera work becomes a lot more interesting. There's a lot more Dutch angles, always the mark of quality. Uh, <laughs> a lot more low and high angle shots as it kind of circles around Peter as he sees corpses rise from all of the graves and begin shambling toward him. And instead of screaming or running away, he has this very muted response where he just slowly backs away. And unknown to him... But uh, known to us because the the way the camera is, we see that as he's backing up, there's another zombie behind him that gets closer and closer. And as we get uh, tighter and tighter on the faces of the zombies, the zombie hand reaches out and grabs Peter on the shoulder. And then he wakes up screaming. And it's been a dream sequence, or at least half a dream sequence. Sir James is quick to reassure Peter that no, his wife really <laughs> did rise from the grave and did get decapitated. But... These two moments, this zombie graveyard scene is really famous, but I think the most interesting aspect of it is when Peter's wife, Alice, rises from the grave with this very seductive smile on her face. She doesn't look as ghoulish as the other zombies. She's still sort of recognizably human, where they have become completely scabrous and hollow-eyed. She just looks like Alice covered in gray. I find that such an interesting moment. And, and what, what do you make of this scene? Well, I think that this is a really interesting moment for a whole bunch of reasons. This is kind of the crux of the film, and it it's a big turning point in the film as well. Up until this moment, the stakes of the film have really been about Clive Hamilton, the squire, claiming a bride, which dates right back to White Zombie. That's the plot of White Zombie, is that you turn somebody into a zombie in order to claim them as a bride. Now, in White Zombie, that's really pertinent because she's just married somebody, and so you have to kill her uh, till death do us part, um, and then you can claim her. It makes at once no sense and perfect sense in terms of my class reading that I've been banging on about throughout this podcast within this film. There is no real reason for Clive Hamilton to need her to be a zombie bride for him. It is heavily implied that she is already having an affair with him, but there is the sense that even though he owns this town, he needs to own this town. He's not content with simply being an adulterer. He needs to 
physically be in power over her. And that, I think, is what segues into the dream, which is the first real sense of the vastness of this quote-unquote zombie conspiracy, where, once again, we get the sense that it is not enough for him to be the utter authority figure in this town. He requires these people to be perfectly in his thrall and working for him. It is this, once again, rapacious sense of the... English nobility, that they must dominate the lower classes, both in terms of labor for the the male zombies and sexually in terms of the female zombies. And that I, I like that reading, but to me the most interesting part of these two scenes is the grin that Alice has on her face when she rises from the grave. And to me, I'm not surprised. I've seen your Warm Bodies fan fiction. And um, what is interesting about that sort of grin that Alice has on her face when she, when she starts approaching Peter and Sir James is that I don't really know what to make of it. Everything else can, can fall into this reading, the sort of class reading, and, and it's almost schematic in that sense. Like, but what I like about this moment and what I like about the dreaminess of these scenes and perhaps why they're so enduring and why critics constantly pinpoint these two scenes as being the major stylistic development of the zombie film in this movie is that it seems to point to something beyond. It seems mm-hmm. to talk about this this almost desire for death or this desiring of death because it would be one thing if you know alice rises from the grave as this servile subject that all the other zombies are right but she rises from the grave and instantly has this almost recognizing but again very vamping smile on her face as she approaches these two men so it is definitely in the sexual dimension of things as you talked about there tom but i like to think of this almost as a moment where we start breaking out of this very rigid class reading and start seeing this as maybe something a little bit weirder where the zombie figure is not just this empty cold body that can be put toward unthinking menial tasks but may actually have some reservoir of power to it. And that's very interesting because we see a number of zombies smiling throughout the course of this film. First zombie that we see is laughing and grinning maniacally and it's quite frightening and so often they're given this kind of rictus grin and that goes right back to white zombie. I think that there is this is different. It's got that sexual seductive component and I think it's drawn explicitly from Dracula, where Lucy Weston arises from the tomb and is so freed of social convention that she becomes extremely sexual and sensuous. But you're right, when you're transposing that into a zombie rather than a vampire, yeah, they're both undead, but there is a very distinct difference in their social resonance, their cultural resonance that you're right, seems to make this a much weirder moment than perhaps I was giving it credit for. So in other words, smiles all around. And on that note, we I think we should wrap this up. Uh, let's just pick an obvious one here. Favorite zombie film, Tom? Okay, just because I'm beating a dead horse, I'm going to go back to that national discussion and say Pontypool, which is, even outside of this, probably my favorite zombie movie. It's a Canadian zombie movie about a washed-up shock jock who is trapped in his radio station when a zombie outbreak occurs in his very small Canadian town. 
what is interesting about this zombie movie is explicitly that the zombie virus is carried by language, specifically English language. And ultimately, the way to avoid this language is either to empty English out of any meaning or speak French, which is such a wonderful expression of Canadian anxieties in regards to language politics with French and English and native languages that I think it is a fabulous example of what I've been talking about. More than that, it is a really good, hilarious film. As for me, I am going to... I mean, there's the obvious ones that we referenced throughout the episode. George A. Romero's trilogy of movies, you know, Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, Day of the Dead. But really for me, and this might be um, heretical to the, the <laughs> Rom to the Romero fans, but my favorite movie has to be Dan O'Bannon's 1985 Return of the Living Dead, where a couple of numbskulls who work at a crematorium accidentally free one of the zombies from Night of the Living Dead that has been boxed up by the government, and they end up getting infected by the zombie gas that also infects the nearby cemetery, which is full of a bunch of punk rockers having a good party. And as this town succumbs to the zombie plague, we see that it's also kind of unstoppable because as soon as you burn the bodies, it just goes up into the atmosphere. And when it rains, this plague is brought down uh, once again. So, But the thing about it that I really like is that it's extremely funny and goofy and it doesn't take itself seriously which i really find the death knell of zombie movies is how serious they take themselves as though they are saying something interesting and original when they're really not <laughs> so having a movie that is just so consciously goofy and silly while still managing to be rather scary tom i know you haven't seen the movie but you've seen the really famous moment where the zombies attack the cops send more cops one of them says into the uh into the police radio like that's a really eerie moment the movie perfectly balances for me the comedy and the horror and so that's my pick well, that should wrap it up for today. I think we've rattled on for quite long enough. Next week, we're going to be bumping up another decade, talking about a 70s classic, Hands of the Ripper, which I'm very excited about. It's one neither of us have seen before, so it might be great or it might be terrible. Tune in next time to find out. <laughs> we promise it won't be several months from now. What, maybe we shouldn't promise? I don't think we should promise. At any rate, if you want to get in touch with us or just keep up with what we're doing through our months-long hiatuses, please go to our hammer time horror podcast facebook page there's our twitter page at hammer time cast and our tumblr hammertimehorror.tumblr.com so if you have any questions or comments or if there's a particular movie you'd like us to tackle next we'd love to hear feedback from you guys and uh as always if you listen to us on itunes please rate and review us because it helps get us more exposure so until next time my name's tom stewart and this is riley mcdonald thank you for listening Hour and a half <laughs> <minutes>. <laughs>